This is the Yale University Press Podcast. I'm Jessica Hollihan, and I'm very happy to introduce my two guests today, Mark Pascal and Esther Adler. Mark Pascal is the Janet and Craig Duchessois Curator of Prints and Drawings at the Art Institute of Chicago. Esther Adler is Associate Curator for the Department of Drawings and Prints at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. And they are two of the curators, along with Edward Kopp of the Menil Drawing Institute at the Menil Collection in Houston, of the newly opened exhibition, Joseph E. Yoakum, What I Saw. They and Edward Kopp have also edited a gorgeous book to accompany the exhibition. And this book, in addition to being beautifully illustrated with more than 100 examples of Joseph Yoakum's work, includes essays by curators, artists, conservation specialists, and more, and presents an account of Yoakum's life and work that is both sweeping and nuanced. And I am delighted to have the chance to talk to you both, Mark and Esther. Thanks for inviting us. Thanks so much, Jessica. So Joseph Yoakum is hardly an unknown artist. In fact, a solo show of his work opened at the Whitney Museum in New York nearly 50 years ago in 1972. But He's perhaps not as widely known as he deserves to be. So uh, could we begin with just a short introduction to who Yoakum was with a necessarily abbreviated subset of highlights from his long and extremely eventful life? Would you like me to start? Yes. I would, yes. Yeah. Start. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, in fact, uh, what, we have, what we know for sure about Joseph Yoakum is a lot less than we know, we don't know, uh, because Yoakum didn't leave much of an archive. Um, he mostly left his words and his drawings. And there, you know, being someone who was born um, in very, very poor in the Jim Crow South uh, with um, eleven or twelve brothers and sisters, and parents who were mixed race, um, African American and uh, Indigenous Native American. He didn't really have a, um, a kind of printed legacy in the way that uh, so many artists do. So um, what we know about Yoakum was that he had very little schooling. And at a very young age, he left his home um, in the uh, southwest corner of Missouri and traveled with circuses and did odd jobs. And he traveled apparently quite broadly. He, he claimed to have traveled um, to every continent except Antarctica. And we um, have looked at the itineraries of American circuses at the, at the Circus World Museum in Baraboo, Wisconsin, and been able to verify many of the locations as stops um, along train routes that the, the circuses took. So this is in some way between his words and this, these facts, or this is the only way that we know that uh, it's likely that Yoakum did travel broadly, although it's not documented with photographs or any other evidence. Um, so Yoakum um, lived... Uh, in various places. He lived in Florida for a while. He lived in Chicago for a while, but he settled in Chicago uh, by, by the mid-1950s. And to the best of our knowledge, in 1962 or thereabouts, he began um, his odyssey and dra daily drawing practice, uh, creating uh, somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 landscape drawings, to the best of our knowledge, and some portraits uh, largely of African-American and Amer Native American uh, celebrities and creative people. 
and that he was discovered in that in a storefront on the south side of Chicago by an anthropology professor who loved the work, bought some, and introduced him to someone who would give him his first public exhibition. And he had a 10-year career as a draftsman, to the best of our knowledge, which ended in 1972, uh, shortly after the opening of the show at the Whitney Museum. Uh, and that's kind of it, unless, Esther, you have something significant you'd like to add to that. No, I think that was an amazing um, recap of, of the biography, Mark. I would say that for, I think one of the challenges for the curatorial team has been um, to both respect what Yoakum told us about his life and to balance that with the kind of art historical drive to prove what he said via the archive, via books, publications, newspapers. And I think because of how Yoka, because of his agency in terms of telling that story, how presenting himself as he wanted to, combined with the fact that as a man of color, he just wouldn't have been captured in the archives, even if he had wanted to be, um, has made it, um, I think, important to balance both of those things, to both present him as he would have wanted or as we think he would have wanted to be presented based on what he said and what he did, while also being, I think, honest about our attempts to confirm things and the inability to do so and why that is. So it's the early 60s. I mean, he has a, a roughly decade-long productive career as as an artist the early 60s he's in his early 70s or thereabouts correct yeah um what what do we know about why he started doing this well <laughs> in his own words um he had a uh, a kind of what he called a spiritual unfoldment in a dream uh, or something along those lines uh in which God told him to draw. And we believe that he probably was drawing before the early 60s, um, but the recorded drawings, um, the ones that we know of, the earliest uh, dated one in his hand is 1962. So um, he previously had kind of got himself into the storefront. By this time, by the way, he is he was married twice and had five children, but um, he was divorced from the wife that uh, with with whom he had five children in the 1920s, and his second wife by this time is 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 also dead, and so he's alone, uh, even though he is in touch from time to time with his children. So he's in the, on the south side of Chicago, sort of a, at the intersection of the of the Chatham and Avalon neighborhoods, on East 82nd Street, and he uh, sets himself up in a storefront where initially he tried to get a license from the city to open a ceramic studio where he would use molds like craft store molds and teach people how to paint ceramics and then fire them um, in the storefront. Uh, the city refused to give him a license. And so um, he began drawing in his own words because he would have gone crazy had he not done something. Um, this is something that comes out in several of the kind of verbal accounts of people who uh, spent time with him visiting and buying drawings from him directly. And so that's sort of the, that's the condition um, at that point. And he's, he has neighbors that come and go. Children like to visit him. We actually have some drawings uh, that were left to the museum by Whitney Halstead that initially the museum characterized as by Yoakum, but they're clearly by children. And they've been traced from coloring books or something like that and colored by the kids. So he was probably, you know, teaching uh, to his, you know, uh, in his words, the young kids how to draw in his studio. So it's kind of a, um, in a mild way, a kind of community 
situation. Um, and, you know, he was alone a lot of the time. And so I'm sure he enjoyed the company, even though, you know, I don't know for a fact because I wasn't, I wasn't here then and I wasn't old enough to have um, been part of it. Um, so that's, that's as much as I know from the recollection of the artists who did know him and uh, the verbal record. It does seem like, you know, and this is based also on the way he annotated stories and titles onto his drawings and just the way he seems to have presented himself, that Joachim was um, like a, someone who, who was a maker, who made, you know, stories, who made drawings, who was driven to kind of communicate creatively. So it's not really surprising to me that um, when, he, and he's good at drawing, he clearly has a natural graphic ability, um, even without any kind of formal training. So I think those two things together probably made it um, something he enjoyed doing, even more so once um, he began to get attention for it and was recognized for it. So the and and Mark, you mentioned that the the overwhelming number of the drawings that he made in in those ten or so years were landscapes. Um, you know, in the absence of a of a visual for our listeners right now, can you both um, tell us a little bit about the drawings themselves, what what they depicted or aimed to depict, and and how. Um, and you know the materials he used and things like that. What 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 one sees when one looks at a Joseph Yoakum landscape? Esther, you want to start? Sure. Um, I think you don't see a landscape like anything that you've seen before. Um, in I think basic terms, Yoakum did not really use what um, those of us in Western art history learned as um, traditional three-point perspective. So when you look at his depictions of mountains, of, of these vast landscapes, everything kind of just builds from bottom to top in some ways. Um, things don't move back into the space illusionistically, or if they do, it's not consistent. So um, it's a different view of the landscape, kind of partially as if you're looking at it from Front, partially is if you're looking at it from above and all of these things are happening simultaneously within the work so that combined with the incredible variety of the type of line he was making of the different shapes um, of the you have broad areas of different kinds of mark making with pen and with pencil and then areas that are completely open either blank pencil or broad washes of color um, the drawings really feel kind of organic and alive. It's as if the landscape is moving beneath beneath you, around you, as you look at it, which makes them really kind of an experience unto themselves. Right. They really envelop you. And I think uh, it's only in, in the examples in which he has uh, like a, someone in a boat in, in a body of water, or he's drawn uh, one of his little log cabins or something like that, that you um, have a sense of, of a defined space. They seem to exist within themselves and within his mind. And the, um, he also developed uh, lacking, you know, direct observational skills uh, that we would normally or traditionally think of as being what an artist develops. He developed graphic symbols that he used consistently uh, and employed over the surface of his drawing. So for example, if he wanted to show um, if he wanted to show a pocket, um, he would create that pocket with um, with a, with an outline, and then he would fill it with 
a type of uh, graphic stylistic tree that was multiplied and they were the same, almost like with a rubber stamp, except that they were all hand drawn. And he had different kinds of trees and they would be in the form of copses of trees. And sometimes they would exist on the ground plane and sometimes they would be inserted incongruously into pockets of the landscape. And sometimes the trees would appear uh, to be too big for where they were visually and you know, in terms of uh, reckoning with them spatially, uh, they didn't resolve that way. And so they have a kind of wonderful idiosyncrasy about them, but it's the pattern, the syncopation of them, um, and also the the way that he would create um, like areas of weeping or, you know, perhaps uh, water uh, melting from snow caps in mountains. I mean, there's, there's almost always mountains of some kind, even the desert uh, pictures are kind of mountainous. You know, he's showing you big dunes that are tremendously high, um, even though they're not craggy the way that perhaps the Rocky Mountains would be. Um, when we th- when we think of Rocky Mountains, we think of, you know, um, the kind of re- uh, erosion uh, that's caused by uh, shrinking glaciers. Um, the deserts, of course, don't have that, but they have a kind of grandeur in the way that they depict height uh, within the within the space in the same way that the other landscapes do. Also, Yoakam um, tended to work with a very limited uh, supply. He, uh, his early drawings, uh, what we think of as his early drawings, were drawn on stationary pads that he bought from Woolworths. Uh, we've been able to trace a watermark on many of the drawings that were about 8 by 10 inches that had a kind of fake linen texture that, that the way that some stationary does. Um, and th- this is something that came from a kind of perfect bound pad he also drew on a sheets of what I used to call manila paper, which is basically newsprint, but it's a very, very soft, acidic type of paper that as children we were given to practice our penmanship on, except his papers were not lined with, uh, with ruled lines. They were just blank. And his early drawings were largely done uh, first with pencil and then very quickly ballpoint pen, either blue or black. And sometimes he would add color to them. The early colors uh, would often be uh, bits, uh, splashes, washes of watercolor. And soon he was using colored pencils and chalks of a kind of student grade that he understood that he could uh, shade by rubbing it with uh, toilet paper wrapped around his finger or just with his finger. And so once he developed an ability to shade or blend, he stopped using watercolors and continued to use dry media. And eventually um, he just used white paper, white drawing paper, and that was it. Um, He had very, very little deviation from that. Uh, When he met artists, artists suggested that he stop using the manila paper, and he did. He stopped using it and kept it, uh, the blank sheets, on 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 a shelf behind his drawing desk and often referred to it either as his papyrus or his Spanish paper to the the delight of the artists. Part of his, part of his, uh, his kind of self-creation of of an identity. And one of the other, uh, remarkable things about them is that most of them um, are labeled with oftentimes very specific locations that um, he intended the viewer to understand they represented, although um, it's not, there's not always an obvious direct relationship between the drawings and the actual geographic locations that after which they're named. I would say there's almost never a direct relationship. <laughs> there is occasionally a direct relationship. I mean, um, 
I was working, I was doing a short entry about one of the drawings that purported to be um, a, a, the sea cliffs off of Brisbane, Australia. And I actually did some, uh, some, some searching and looked at some real photographs of the of the cliffs out on uh, in Brisbane on the ocean, and it wasn't that different. And another time, there was a uh, an, a curator from the Lincoln Park Zoo visiting the, the department one day, and we had a number of Yoakum drawings out, and there were several of um, Idaho. And he remarked that uh, if you took a train trip through the mountains in Idaho and looked out, you would see something not unlike what we were looking at. And so, I mean, I, I did that after that. And if you Google, if you Google search by image, uh, some of the inscribed locations on Yoakum's drawings, it's not the same exactly, of course, but he does have a feeling for um, the kind of nooks and crannies and craggy outcroppings in mountains um, when seen either in pictures or in real life. Um, I, th I find it also fascinating that it's possible that that could be. Uh, but I agree with Esther that uh, largely the the drawn image does not necessarily correspond to what we know about the location he's inscribed on it. Well, and it's but, so, those, but those places really do exist. Yeah, and I think as Mark's saying, what's tantalizing is the sense of like, did he see this? Was he looking at a picture? Like we know in some instances he was looking at an image, um, a picture postcard or something in an atlas. In one case, we know exactly what he was looking at based on the relationship between the drawing and the initial materials. But also, even if he had been to these places, it likely would have been decades earlier as a yet much younger man and in a very different kind of moment in life. So also thinking about how memory affects what, how you uh, perceive what you've seen. So what did these things look like when at that point in his life versus what did they look like in his mind's eye, however many decades later? So there's a lot of, um, I think, relevance in terms of aging and how we see things differently depending on where we are in our own lives that really plays into these drawings in fascinating ways too. And one of the other things that occurred to me too, looking through the drawings that are included in the book is that, um, you know, he, as you said, Marky, that he has this very consistent sort of visual language for uh, depicting the different kinds of geographic formations that are included in very many of the landscapes, but they are all different. And so, you know, if you're looking at a number of them in sequence, what what winds up coming to the fore or what did for me anyway, was the difference. I mean, you know, even if it's a subtle thing, um, he, he was remembering a different thing, I think. I mean, it, you know, it, it, there, there are, um, you know, he, he is showing you a different place. Well, he's also, just like any artist, he's making variations on form. You know, um, we know, for, exa for example, that he did trace some of his drawings because he didn't want to sell um, the very first iteration of it. Uh, but he, he would sell a copy of it that he would then color later. Um, a lot of those early drawings that um, he referred to as patron drawings, uh, which he meant, which for him meant pattern, was the way he spelled pattern, were, uh, were preserved by him uh, so that he could make additional copies. But within the stream of, uh, of images that we have in the exhibition, there are, for example, uh, three drawings of Holy uh, Mount Calvary. And two of them look kind of alike, and another one looks 
completely unlike the rest. They're all from different moments in that 10-year period, but they all are very different. Um, and that he does things with features in the landscape by compressing them or expanding them so that visually each one has, you know, is a different presentation. And that's not unlike the kind of morphological exercise that any artist would go through to, to arrive at a, at a finished statement or several different finished statements based on a, on a, on a kind of model. So that's one of the reasons why I've always been convinced that Yoakum was just an artist. He wasn't any any particular kind of artist. I don't like to classify him as like an outsider or self-taught artist the way that uh, historically he has been. He had all of the capability and the kind of content of any artist. And so he is an artist to me. And these examples within his oeuvre um, kind of underscore that fact and the importance of it, I think, for people to recognize. And it's one of the reasons why we, we selected the show that we did. Yeah, I think that's right, Mark. I think um, this exact point of being able to show the um, kind, of, kind of amazing uniqueness of each work while also being able to juxtapose things that are similar enough that you can see that kind of development and you can see where, um, where specific choices have been made towards different ends was really important. I think there can be a risk with Yoakum's work that either by showing too much or showing the not right selection of things, like there can be a flattening of it in some ways because they are, they're intense and you kind of get drawn into each individual one in a way that makes it hard to step back and see overall style, overall development, things like that. So I think the project was really very much about balancing um, balancing those two desires to both reveal kind of what an amazing vision and, and graphic talent he was, while also linking enough things over the course of the career to really um, show its development and, and where it was all coming from. So oh, apart from his artistic development over the course of his career, you know, he goes from being a guy in a storefront on the south side of Chicago to having a show at the Whitney. What are, what are some of the things that happened to connect those dots? Um, well, starting with the first presentation that was in the, the basement coffee house of a church, a hippy dippy coffee house called The Hole, um, not far from Yoakum storefront, which was arranged by John Hobgood, the, um, the anthropologist who first saw the drawings by accident walking down the street. He saw them hanging in the storefront window. So there were, I think, about 30 drawings that were thumbtacked to tack boards in a hallway, which also included a couch and a payphone. So it was a very uh, kind of casual space, as was the entire enterprise of this, of this coffee house. And they just thumbtacked them to the wall. There were no frames. There were no mats. Um, if you look at early photographs, some of which we showed in the catalog, you can clearly see hand-lettered sold signs tacked next to the drawings. And as they sold and people took them away, they kept adding more and more. I believe that they started with 30 and they, uh, they probably had as many as uh, 60 or 70 different drawings in that presentation. Um, from that, uh, at that presentation, there was uh, an artist who owned a printing company named Tom Brand and his company was called Galaxy Press. He was doing printing for the whole and he saw the show and was as an artist, he was impressed by it. And he told a friend of his who he was also doing printing for, who owned a gallery named Edward Sherbane. And Sh this coffee shop was on the south side of Chicago. Sherbane had a gallery in Lincoln Park, which is on the near north, near north side of the city. And he made an arrangement with Yoakum uh, to 
present him in an exhibition, which was he, in which he was characterized as Chicago's own primitive. And I'm putting that in, in quotes because that's what it says on the poster. And so Brand uh, was pretty responsible for the, kind of getting Yoakum out of the church basement into the public eye. At Sherbane's exhibition, um, apparently Carl Worsom saw the work just walking around the neighborhood and, and went in and bought one. And from, to the best of our knowledge, uh, Jim Nutt was visiting Carl. These are both artists in Chicago, pretty well-known artists in Chicago, saw the drawing and was knocked out by it and went to the gallery and bought several and then went home with them and decided overnight that he hadn't gotten enough and went back and bought more. And likely, we, we believe that Ray Yoshida, who is a professor at the School of the Art Institute, also had his first experience buying from Chervain. Roger Brown, another artist in Chicago, bought his first drawings from Chervain. And eventually, the word spread among these friends who were very like-minded, um, uh, both Whitney Halstead, who didn't buy drawings from Chervain, but found out about it probably from Ray Yoshida, perhaps one of the other artists, uh, came to know and like the work as well. And at some point uh, in 19, the show was in 1968, um, the spring. In the summer of 1968, Roger Brown had the idea of looking Yoakum up in the phone book, found his number and called him and introduced himself and asked if he could visit with a couple of friends and Yoakum welcomed them. Yoakum um, sold drawings directly to them at that time what he didn't know was that in entering a relationship with Edward Sherbane, he had signed an exclusive contract so that Sherbane was supposed to be his exclusive representative. And when word got back to Sherbane that Yoakum was selling out of his storefront, uh, he became very angry. And I, I guess he must have confronted him because at some point to help uh, Yoakum extract himself from this contract that he didn't know he had signed, he introduced Yoakum to some lawyers who wrote a letter to the to the gallerists to try to get them get him to, you know, to stop the contract or extract Yoakum for the contract. I don't know that that happened because later we've, I've seen uh, a letter that Yoakum wrote to another person who helped him in which he described having to forfeit $15,000 worth of drawings in order to remove himself from his contract with Germain. So um, that ended his one and only commercial relationship in his lifetime. And the only way that his work could be seen, could be spread around, was through word of mouth and the help of the artists who really loved him and appreciated him, supported him. They were not his agents, but they gave him, they helped him with his agency. And he himself directed many of the uh, kind of uh, exhibitions that happened after that experience with Edward Sherbain, starting in 1970 at Penn State, continuing at the School of the Art Institute in 1971, Rockford College, Illinois State University. So they're not commercial spaces, they're university art galleries. But the work is selling in these galleries, and that's very helpful to Yoakum. He likes the money because um, he's a pensioner, and they're not selling for very much money. I, when I look back at that time, and I look at the exhibitions that the artists themselves had um, in, in the late 1960s, uh, some of their work on paper would sell for anywhere from between let's say $45 to $200. And Yoakum's drawings commercially were selling for anywhere from $25 to $85, later $100. Um, the only other relationship he had commercially was with a gallery in Folsom, California called The Candy Store. And that introduction was made by uh, Jim Nutt and Gladys Nilsson, who were teaching at Sacramento State University at the time. And it was the owner of the gallery uh, appreciated them as artists and as many gallerists do, 
invited them to uh, introduce to her the work that they thought was interesting. And Yoakum was one of them. So, I mean, this is, this is a very long-winded way of saying that Yoakum didn't have that much exposure, but the exposure that he did have was really important because it really entered the art world through the artists and art historians. And um, that's kind of what cemented him in the eye of the art world. But it's also possibly why um, he's not better known because he didn't have, you know, beyond 1972, uh, galleries exhibited his work, but he didn't have uh, a kind of ongoing production. And I guess I would add that even though this is a part of Yoakum's life, that we are able to kind of confirm and document because people who were part of it, um, part of that life are, are still around. And, and Mark has really been doing research into this for years and is really, I think, the genesis of this, this project and this focus on Yoakum. But um, because we are able to document, it felt really important to do so and to publish it in the book because the lore around Yoakum based on the fact that so much of his life is unable to be documented in, in this way, I think has also drifted into um, the later parts of, of his life and it, it shapes the way the work is perceived. Um, and so it seemed, I think it felt important to us to be able to be very clear about what the relationships were, what the community was um, as a way of helping us to understand how that would have uh, shape, how that would have resulted both in his work and both in the work of, of other artists who, um, who you know, saw him and, and knew him and, and were engaged with his practice as an artist. So Esther, you have an essay in the book uh, that explores uh, the relationship between Yoakum's artistic career and Christian science. Can you tell us why that topic and why it's important? Sure. Um, I knew pretty much from the outset that I wanted to write about uh, Yoakum and Christian science because it was a pretty uh, known, I guess, in Yoakum literature fact or statement that this funny phrase he used, my drawings are spiritual unfoldment, which is also the headline of one of the first major articles that, that's published on, on his work in um, the Chicago Daily News, that this funny term spiritual enfoldment came from the key text of Christian science, Murray Baker Eddy's Science and Health. And I thought that was amazing. And I was really annoyed that no one could tell me why it was that that was the case. I mean, that's not exactly a common source for, for things. I mean, that was not something I had come across before. So I was really interested in understanding like what the draw to Christian science was and how Yoakum would have even learned about Christian science, how it was he would, he would have come to, um, to adopt that vocabulary. And um, the other thing that's been an interest of mine over time is how artists engage with religion and spirituality in different parts of their practice. And knowing that Yoakum was living in a predominantly African-American part of Chicago, and that the Black church historically, but especially in Chicago, has been um, critical in all kinds of social, political, artistic moments, it also seemed, I was interested to learn more about how that might link into Yoakum's work. Again, knowing that he was not part of a community, per se, of of black artists, he was very much a community of a, um, a community of white artists who were traveling to the south 
the South Side to see him and who wouldn't have been, you know, going to church with him. I don't know if he went to church. There wouldn't have been that kind of overt religious connection. And yet he was clearly a very religious man. He talks about God all of the time um, in the articles where he's quoted, um, in discussions he had with other artists. So it just seemed like there was a real link to me there between that sense of his religion, spirituality, and the circumstances in which he, he was living and, and how he navigated the world. Yeah, so the so the community of artists that he he wound up being a part of was a, a largely white community of artists, um, but he was geographically proximate at the time to the Black Arts Movement on the South Side of Chicago, which was a very big deal to the artists who participated in that movement, um, and there there is a, a very interesting essay in the book about that, that in combination with a number of other things about his life, you know, as a, an American person of color who, um, had the, you know, who told, who narrated his own life story, as we've said, in a way that was, has been difficult to verify, um, must have presented both some opportunities and some difficulties around how to tell the story, both of his life and of his experience as an artist um, in this book, what what were some of the most salient of those for, for each of you? I think, um, and not to speak for Mark or my collaborators, but I think for me, what felt important was to be honest and transparent about what yoga claimed what we knew to be true and what we didn't, and also to bring a little bit of thinking as to why he potentially would have claimed things that um, we know were not true. Like, why would he have insisted on presenting himself as a Navajo or a Navajo, as he liked to say? Um, why would he have insisted on presenting himself as pulling from that Native heritage when, in fact, he was certainly not um, Navajo, um, and seems to not have had a lot of connection to any indigenous culture, even if he did have um, bloodlines that he, he could have traced. Why it was that an artist would have chosen to identify in that way. And I think there are actually likely very specific reasons why he did that. Um, I think it allowed him to establish himself as something other than, as he would reference himself, an old black man. I think it allowed him to claim a kind of access to the natural world that perhaps would have been denied to him as someone who was living in um, a very urban, segregated area of Chicago. I think it allowed him to claim a kind of um, authenticity, a kind of connection with the earth that clearly he felt, but felt a need to kind of authenticate in some way. So I think there are really to me, what seem to be clear reasons why he would have made these decisions. Um, and I think it's important to recognize that, to know that, and, and not to excuse it necessarily, I mean, um, but really just to think about that when we look at the work to kind of add to the knowledge base and to the way in which all of that is interpreted. Yeah, so uh, adding to that, I would say that um, to some degree, you know, he used that alter ego or that alter identity um, as a way of protecting himself from being exploited. Uh, there is one really interesting letter that he wrote to Jim Nutt 
when when Nutt was in Sacramento and and handling some uh, some sales for him through the candy store, in which he um, he said, "I hope that you are presenting me as a, a as a as a true Navajo Indian, not an old black man." Ha ha he he, sort of like an inside joke, and because truly he's obviously concerned that that he'll get a fair price for his drawings, not as a black man, but as a but as a Native American. Uh, also. Uh, the artists themselves, I mean, I've had conversations with many of them and, um, you know, it's when you're so wrapped up in, in, in an artist and their work, um, you try not to be critical of them in a way, but I think they all accepted what Yoakam said at face value, but they knew that they, they knew that he was, he was yanking them also. I mean, Ray Yoshida at one point in the letter, um, referred to him as Nava Joseph. So they understood that he was making a play on his name also. That's why not Navajo, it's Nava Joe, because he's Joe. So, um, I mean, I had this conversation with Kathleen Ash Milby, who wrote about constructed identity in the book, and she was she was happy to hear that. I think she, it surprised her, because I think the perception is that the artists, you know, um, were hoodwinked by him or exploited him in some way, or, you know, like there, was, there wasn't a balance of power in the relationship, but there was, I think. Based on what I've what I've read in in letters and verbal accounts, so yes, all, everything that Esther said I would agree with, um, particularly the the, the part, portions about being in an urban area but remembering particularly um, a lifetime spent in the natural world and being very connected to it. Why else would he make these extraordinary landscapes? I mean, to me, that's like he's rewriting his life through pictures. That's what the drawings are about. They're really self portraits in a way. Um, and they they are reflecting on uh, the parts of his life that were free, open, and exhilarating. Yeah, I think uh, one of the most uh, exciting things about this project, about the book, for uh, for me, was that the this tension between imagining um, a man who was no longer young, sitting in a very small space in a very urban setting making these very beautiful drawings of the wilderness. And, you know, even if, even if his story about having visited each and every one of these places isn't true, which of course it may well be very true. Um, he, he spent the last 10 years of his life wandering them in his mind. And that, is, that the book does a really exceptional job of conveying that to the reader. And um, thank you for that. And thank you both again very much for making time to talk to me today. Thanks. Well, that was fun. <laughs> it's a beautiful show. I hope everyone will get a chance to see it in Chicago, where Mark has just done an extraordinary job of bringing it to life in the galleries. It is. It's it's a very exciting exhibition. So it is open now in Chicago uh, until October 18th. And after that, it will be on view at the Museum of Modern Art in New York from November 28th, 2021 until March 19th, 2022. And from there, the Texans will have a chance to see it as it travels to the Menil Collection in Houston, where it will be open from April 22nd until August 7th, 2022. Nice, long traveling exhibition. Hopefully, many of you will have the chance to see it. Um, and whether or not you do, the book is tremendous. And the title again of both the exhibition and the book is Joseph E. Yoakum, What I Saw. The book 
can be purchased now wherever books are sold. And thank you for checking out our podcast. Please visit us online at yalebooks.com to keep up with our podcast series and all the latest from our authors.